I'm going to read verses 38 through 42. And then after there, we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 13 and read verses 44 through 46. So Luke chapter 10, verse 38, and Matthew 13 and 44. And we'll start reading in Luke. And it says, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. I'll give you a second to flip over there. Oh, we got them on screen. Amen. And it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Amen. If you would pray with me before we go any further tonight, I ask the Lord that he would have his way through his word. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for another opportunity to come into your presence, come into your house and worship you. Lord, we ask you right now that you would open our eyes, Lord, that we would behold wonderful things out of your word. God, allow your word to meet us exactly where we are. Lord, where we are in our trouble, where we are in our grief, Lord, where we are in our struggles. Lord, let it be enough to pull us out of where we are. Lord, prepare our hearts to be able to hear it. Lord, break up the ground of our hearts. Lord, prepare it for the seed that is your word. Lord, that it will find some good ground to rest on. Lord, that we won't just be hearers tonight, but we'll be doers of it as well. We need you, Holy Ghost, Lord. None of this is possible, Lord, unless you're moving. Lord, open our ears. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight on this thought of treasuring Christ. Treasuring Christ. And this sermon started to develop in my mind about a couple of weeks ago whenever I was coming back from the University of the Cumberlands where I go down there, commute to college, well, not, ev not every day of the week, but a lot of days of the week, commuting to college. And I was coming back and I was just thinking about everything that I had to do that day and thinking about everything that I had to do that week. That week was going to be uh, busier than others. I was just thinking about all that and to be honest, I wasn't feeling great about any of it, <laughs> about wanting to do any of it at all. And it was like in that moment, I was getting off the interstate. I can, take, I can about take you to where the spot it was. <laughs> the Holy Ghost spoke to my heart, and he said this, When did you forget that the point of this life is to treasure Christ? And I don't, you know, I, I don't claim to have ever heard the audible voice of God, but if you've had the Lord speak to you before, you know what it's like whenever the Holy Spirit moves and he pricks you right in the heart. And it's normally right in the most vulnerable spot that there is. And I remember he said that, and it, was, and it was just as clear. It was like those words that he spoke to my heart. When did you forget that the purpose of this whole life is to treasure 
Christ. So we forget that time and time again that we're doing so much work for the Lord. And a lot of those things that I had to do that week were a lot of things to do here at the church and do here at the school. But in the middle of it all, I was forgetting the most important thing that I could ever remember. And that's to treasure Christ. You look those words up in the dictionary, one of them's a noun, one of them's a verb. We all know what treasure means. That one's pretty obvious. It's something of value. But then you use it as a verb. To treasure something is to hold something in high esteem, to hold something in high value, to consider something precious in your life. And as believers here tonight, the most precious thing that we should consider in our lives is our Lord and Savior. It is the chief end of man to glorify God and to treasure him in our lives. Because no matter what we go through, just the experience of knowing him should bring us joy. Because we're going to go through trials in this life. We're going to go through struggles in this life. But let me tell you, the unbeliever that goes through trials and struggles and the believer that goes through trials and struggles, the believer always has the advantage. Why? Because he can be going through the same exact situation. But the difference is one of them has Christ and the other one doesn't. Simply the fact of knowing him makes all the difference. To have joy, the joy that we get to experience Christ. We think about our lives as a gift, the gift of life and the life that we're going to live. But one of the most glorious things that we can do with our life is to know God, to know him. Matter of fact, when Jesus was speaking in the New Testament, it's in the book of John, he said, this is eternal life, that they would know their God, that they would know him. Know about him, be in relationship with him, be in fellowship with him. That they wouldn't just hear stories about him that they they think are just thousands of years ago and have no bearing on our lives today. But know that through his word and through his spirit that we would actually have relationship with the God of the universe and know him. Because the same word that it uses there for know in the Greek is the same exact word that it uses when it says that Mary and Joseph, he knew her not until Jesus was born. It, it, it carries with it a deeper connotation than merely just, I have a head knowledge of something, but it's a more intimate knowledge that, 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 that friends can share or that, a, or that a, a husband and a wife can share together. A deeper relationship that it, it's not just any type of relationship, but no, it goes past the point of just being merely an acquaintance. Or just knowing something about somebody. But no, I know him. I know him. In our lives at that point, we begin to see are they, they are a gift. Just so that we can have the opportunity to be able to know him. To be able to know him and to be able to treasure him. And like I said, when we're going through those tough times in life, when we have Jesus, we're always on top. Same can be said the other way. Say it the other way. In in prospering, the unbeliever that prospers and the believer that prospers, the believer is always on top. Why? Because he has Jesus. As I was preparing for this and I was thinking about what it means to truly treasure Christ, to be thankful that he's in your life. When's the last time you just stopped and you thought about how awesome God is, how gracious he is, and how wonderful he is in your life? Maybe that thought seems kind of foreign to you. Like, would you really do that? Is that some type of just super spiritual mumbo-jumbo that you say here in church that I just stop and I think about Jesus? But no, do you actually? Do you ever? 
Is it on your mind that the greatest thing that I could do with my time today is to spend it in his presence and getting to know him more? Hallelujah. In preparing for this, I was, I was reading, a, or it was brought back to my memory, something that I had read before in this book. And it was a letter that this man had written to uh, his daughter because he wanted her to know why she should follow Christ. And he wanted to let her know why he followed Christ. And it's a little bit lengthy, but if you'll give me about five and a half minutes, I'll be able to get through it because there's a lot of great things in here and it's going to help us understand better how to treasure Christ and the reason that we should. And that's how he entitled his letter was Why I Follow Christ. He says, I have not seen clear statistical evidence that fewer Christians die of cancer than non-believers or that they are immune in greater degree from the diseases that afflict the human race. Some of the kindest, most selfless persons I know have had more of their share of bad health. The fact that they belong to Christ did not insulate them from disease. Therefore, I will not follow Christ for promised healing. I will not deny or dispute evidence of restoration of health. I will rejoice at every recovery from what seemed to be hopeless and threatened death. But I will not hesitate to pray for the recovered health of my loved ones and acquaintances. I will set no limits on what God may do. But I will not follow Christ for promised healing. I see no sign that Christians escape disaster and accident more than others. I have helped dear friends empty muddy water out of dresser drawers and newer appliances after a disastrous flood. I remember as a child taking clothes to a window with five children whose house had burned to the ground. A bullet makes no detour around the body of a believer. Therefore, I will not follow Christ for any promised protection from disaster. I will not scoff at an amazing survivals, nor deny that providence has and continues to work for the good of God's own. I will pray, I will continue to pray for the protection from the wicked men and tragedy, but I will not follow Christ for promised protection or from accident or catastrophe. I do not observe that Christians are especially favored with prosperity like James. We all have seen the rich oppressing the poor. And justice is rarely perfect in this world. The psalmist has said that he had not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. And in the deepest needs of this life, that is certainly true. But all of us have known people of integrity who have been, not been prospered. Therefore, I will not follow Christ for promised freedom from physical want or hope of affluence. I am not certain that Christians have stronger personalities than non-believers. I do know that there is no bitterness like religious bitterness and no arrogance more insufferable. I have watched Christians suffer emotional and mental disabilities. Though it may seem heretical, I am not sure that I would really enjoy living in the same home as either the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul. God wills that the mind of Christ be formed in us. And there is no doubt in my mind that Christians' attitudes and actions will be improved by his Christianity. But I will not follow Christ for any promise of personality, enhancement, or perfection. Why then follow Christ? Why be a disciple of Jesus when life may become more complicated as he often warned? For one reason alone. In Jesus, we behold the face of of God. He is the truth, the everlasting truth, God in flesh.
I know that in his life, his death, his resurrection, I am reconciled to God, the giver of life. I believe that nothing can separate me from the love of God. He has all power and goodness. I trust him in his promises. To him, I offer my life, damaged or whole, brief or full of years. It matters not. He is the one certain thing in an uncertain world. He is to be worshipped and not something Not so that something will happen to me or to the world. Something has already happened to me and the world. But because he is God, who through Christ has reconciled the world to himself, he saves me. He is my justification. He is the center that holds. To worship the God of our salvation. To offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. That alone is our vocation. We offer our lives to God Not so as to be healthy, wealthy, or wise. Not even so as to gain strength and to do great things for him. We offer our lives to him because he alone has claim on us. God is not a means. I think it's especially important to remember that. That all of those blessings that he described... He says, I don't, I, don't, I don't say that those things don't happen. I don't say that healings don't happen. I don't say that providential acts of divine intervention don't happen. He says, I don't say that, 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 that healing and, 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 and personal uh, improvement. I'm not saying that any of those things don't happen. But he says, that is never the reason why to follow Jesus. That is never the reason why we are to consider him precious. Not for what he does for us, but because of who he is, where he gets to that point in that letter where he says, because it is through Jesus that we see the glory of God. God is not our means tonight. God is not our genie in the bottle that we are to get to something. It's got to be through him. No, it's him and that's it. It's Jesus and that's it. And when Jesus is not the focal point of our life, it doesn't matter whether we prosper or whether we are sick. We're lost. If Jesus is not the thing that we're running after and is not everything the inside of us that we're, that we're desiring to become more of, we're lost. We've missed the whole point of it. Because again, Jesus does do, the, do those things. Brother Jarvis preached a couple weeks ago that we are continuationists. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in healing. We believe in the outpouring of the Holy Ghost in this church. But if we place the miracles above the one who does the miracles, we've missed it all. That's how you fall into heresy. When you're looking for his hand and not his face. When you're looking for what he can do and not what he's already done for you on the cross. When that is not the highest pinnacle of our existence as Christians and who we are, we begin to fall off and no longer become anything of the sort. When we treasure Christ truly, we become what we're supposed to be. We become, it's like automatic. We talked about it in our, in our Sunday school class today. We're going through Galatians, and Galatians, that's where you find the fruit of the Spirit. And, and, and that simply says that whenever you plant something, the Bible uses agricultural anal- analogies so many times through, all throughout the book, that when you plant something, you're going to get whatever you planted. Okay, I didn't come up with that analogy. Jesus did because he said, you will know them by their fruit. 
If you put a seed in the ground, that seed cannot help but bear the type of fruit that it was meant to produce. When Jesus does a work in your life, you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to help it except to bear the fruit of the spirit in your life. So as Christians, we step back for a minute and we say, "Am I producing the fruit of the spirit in my life?" Because there's other reasons why you might not be producing it, not just because the wrong seed hasn't been planted, but there's other things like it's not got enough sunlight. It's not been watered enough. It's been colder during times and warmer in other times. And it's not getting the proper nutrient it's deserved to be able to bear the fruit that it's supposed to. But the principle still remains the same. If God did something in your life, there is going to be fruit. There is going to be fruit. There's no way around it. If you're not advancing in your Christian life, something's wrong. If you're not getting closer to God and treasuring Him more and more and, learned, and wanting to desire to know more about Him, something's wrong. We don't, we, just because you're not as far along as other people doesn't mean that you're any less than they are. It's all in a process called sanctification. It's a part of growing up. The Bible says that you can be a spiritual babe in Christ. Just like you can be a, spiritual, a physical baby. And no one looks at that baby and says, you are messed up, little baby. You don't know how to read. You don't know how to write. You don't know how to walk. It's perfect in the state that it's in. But if 20 years from now we're in that same state, there's something that's not developing like it should. <laughs> and as Christians, if we're not developing in our hunger and thirst after righteousness, to desire to know God more, to desire to treasure Him truly, that the end of it all is simply that I get to experience Christ. When I wake up in the morning, His mercies are new, and I get to live life with Him. If that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't sound like something that you would enjoy, it's time to check our hearts again and see what are our priorities. When I get up and I know that I'm able to go into his presence and I don't long to be in his presence, where are my affections? Where are my desires? Where's my purpose? Where's my intention? Every morning it says, his mercies are new. That story that we read of Mary and Martha, it's about two sisters, about one that's working for Christ and one that is treasuring Christ. And whenever I read this story, I get messed up sometimes because I feel like it's backwards. I feel like, Jesus, you got this one flipped somehow. You, 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 did, you, you said the wrong thing to the wrong person. Because if you look in this story, it says there was a woman named Martha who received Jesus into her house. He was coming by that city. It came to pass. They went into a village, and there's a woman that received him into her house. She's out there looking for Jesus to come by, inviting Jesus to come into her house. That's a godly desire. That's something that we should all be wanting is have more of Jesus in our lives, to have Jesus in our presence. And so she's out there looking for Jesus, pulling Jesus aside to come into her house. And immediately, whenever he turns aside and comes in, she's getting the house ready. She's sweeping and mopping, getting everything clean. Even the rooms that Jesus is probably not going to go in if she's anything like my mom. And when company came over, you got to clean your room. But mom, company's not going to be, be in my room. Why do I need to clean my room? Because company's coming over. You got to go clean it anyways. So she probably has that type of mentality that I got to make sure everything is right for Jesus. 
And as she's doing that, she's sweeping one room and she runs back into the kitchen to flip whatever piece of meat or chop some vegetables or whatever she was preparing for Jesus. And and, and she did that to make sure that's not burning and runs back into the side room there or into the bedroom to get it ready. And the whole time she's wondering, where in the world is my sister? My sister's supposed to be helping me do all of this. And as she's making her way, running back towards the kitchen, it catches her attention. She looks in the living room and she sees Mary's just sitting there at Jesus' feet. She gets angry like any of us would have got angry. Jesus, I'm working for you. Jesus, I'm cleaning this house. Jesus, I'm preparing this meal. Don't you notice what I'm doing? Don't you notice the things, that, that these godly desires that I have in my, in my heart to be able to do things for you? Don't you notice that? Why don't you make Mary come and help me? And then Martha is the one who ends up getting rebuked. And every time I read that, I'm like, Jesus, you missed it. You're supposed to, you're supposed to make her go help. Because in our minds, in my mind at least, I won't won't put you in there if you're not with me. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. In my mind, I'm like, God, all of these are godly desires, are great things. Of course, why why, why would you not want the house to be clean for you? Don't you see how hard she's working? But then he looks aside and says, Martha, you're worried about so many things, but there's only one thing that's needful. There's only one thing that's needful. And Mary has chosen that good part, and it will not be taken away away from her so many times we come to church with a Martha mentality that we got to get here we got to turn everything on we got to make sure Sunday school goes smoothly and then after that we got to transition to the service make sure the worship team comes up does what they're supposed to do singing pretty and if anybody's not singing pretty we got to make sure that we're turning them down a little bit so that everything sounds good in this service and so that people come back and won't tell everybody we got bad singers I'm going to get in trouble. I'm not talking about anybody. I'm just making up a scenario. <laughs> Y'all, if you think I'm talking about you, you can come see me. I'll tell you, I was not talking about you. <laughs> and we're making sure everything's going perfect in the service. That's, what I'm, that's the point I'm trying to make. Trying to make sure everything's going perfect in the service. And then we get up, we listen to the message. And then after that, we had company coming over. So we got to go home and check the crock pot and make sure that didn't burn the house down. And make sure all that table's set and everything. And then maybe take a nap and come back. And then we realize at the end of the day, you know what? I just spent an entire day in the Lord's house and I never once thought about him. But there's only one thing that's needful. There's only one thing that's needful. And as I'm reading this story, and I see Jesus, he's sitting in that living room or wherever, whatever room it may have been. Mary's sitting at his feet, and she's receiving from Jesus his teachings, his stories, his miracles that he's performed. And Martha is getting everything else ready. And it's only in that moment when I realize what the difference is. What's greater, what Martha can do for Jesus or what Jesus can do for Martha? Mary chose the good part. And it may be the case that sometimes dinner may be a little bit late. The house may not look exactly like it needs to. But when Jesus comes by, we're not telling him to wait. We're not telling hold on, i got to fix this real quick. But no, when he comes by, Jesus, there's only one thing that's needful, and that's being in your presence. Because anything that I can give you, it doesn't even compare to anything that you give me. 
the spiritual revelation, the time in the presence of the Lord that Martha is experiencing outweighs significantly anything that Martha could have done in performance for Jesus. But again, we get, I get twisted up. I won't put you in there with me. Like I said, I wouldn't. I get twisted up. It's like, God, all of those are godly desires. <laughs> all of those are good things. But when there's one thing that's necessary and that's being in his presence... We ought not let anything keep us from him. We ought not let anything keep us from treasuring him. We ought to have a heart that says, Jesus, if you've come by, if you've interrupted this service, if you've interrupted my day, if you've interrupted my conversation, whatever it may be, Lord, I can turn aside and spend some time with you. Lord, I can turn aside and see what you're having to say. Because anything I can do for you, it won't be as important as what you can do for me. Your words are better than my words. Your works are better than my works. I can't outgive you because you've already given me everything that I can. And what do you do? You just simply sit there like Mary and just treasure the time that you spend in his presence. But in this idea of treasuring God truly, we got to remember that he's the one who first treasured us. Oh, before I go on, I had this in my notes, and that was good. Because God does not treat us like employees. He treats us like sons and daughters. I'm glad I looked at that. I would have messed that up. <laughs> and the story of Mary and Martha, where he, she's trying to perform and do her best for Jesus. And do her best to maybe receive some kind of paycheck, some kind of reward. But when, if you're an employee, whenever you go home... The boss don't care about you no more. But when you're a son and a daughter, there's nothing that you do that stops your sonship, that stops your daughtership. And then all of a sudden, you don't work because you have to, because you're going to get paid. No, I work because I love my father. I want to please him because he's my father. I want to, I want to see a smile on his face and, and do things that he likes. Why? Because he's my father. And I don't treat him like he's my boss. And my or my employer, or I'm, in his, or I'm his employee. No, I treat him like he's my father and like I'm his son. Because when you go home, you don't stop being a son. You don't stop being a daughter. Wherever you are, there's nothing that you can do to change that. And that's how he treats us. But before we can truly treasure Christ for who he is, we got to realize he's the one who treasured us to begin with first. In Matthew 13, that passage that I read from, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And we look at these two parables some people have a tendency to think, well, they're talking about the same exact thing. When I started studying, studying these two, they couldn't be further apart. Because they're not even talking about the same person in each of them. Because <laughs> if you notice, it says the kingdom of heaven, that's the main subject in each of them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure. But in the second one, it says the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant. One seeking... And one's being sought. The first one, 
the traditional reading is to simply look at it and say, well, that's us when we, when we seek Jesus. You know, we, we give up everything that we have so that we can take him on. And that might be the uh, interpretation for one of them. But for the first one, I don't think that's correct at all. Because when you look at it, it says the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure. we got to figure out what is that kingdom of heaven. That kingdom of heaven, that's everything that Jesus purchased with his blood. That's everything that he owns. That's the kingdom that he died for. That's the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hidden in a field. That when a man hath found, he hideth it, and for joy thereof goeth and sells all that he has. Who does that sound like? That when he found a treasure, left everything that he had to go and buy that treasure. That's our Lord and Savior. That's Jesus. That when he saw us, he said, that right there, that kingdom of God, those people that I bled for, those people that I died for, those people that I went to the cross for, they are my treasure. They are what I count as valuable. And the only reason any of us have value tonight is because Jesus counted us as valuable. Valuable valuable enough for him to go to the cross and die the death of a man who was a murderer, a thief, an insurrectionist, and die his death. Why? Because he saw a treasure that was hidden in that field. He saw a treasure and he said, that thing is worth it. Uh, If we were in the mind of God, if we were out there somewhere in eternity past when God devised this whole plan, we would have looked at him and said, Lord, you are absolutely crazy. What in the world do you see in them? What in the world do you see in that? Because look here. It says, when a man hath found, he hideth it, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he has, and buyeth the field. It didn't say he bought the treasure. He bought the field. And our Bible tells us that he not only died for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so when Jesus looked down and he looked at his treasure, and you know what that treasure was that he saw in the middle of all this messed up world? In the middle of all of it, he saw a church. And he said, that church is worth bleeding for. That church is worth dying for. Even though that there's some of them that I'm going to bleed for and die for, and whosoever will can come and have salvation and find it in me, I'm still going to die, and they're still going to be saved because he not only paid for our sins, but also the sin of the whole world. He bought it all. Why? Because in the middle of it was you and me me in the middle of it was a church that he found valuable in the middle of it was a church that he found precious and what did he do he bought the whole entire thing purchased it all to the point where Romans says all of creation now is in groaning is now in travail the the the, the Greek word there is in birth pains for his return it's groaning for when he comes back why because it's his he bought it and he considered it a treasure Considered it a treasure. Considered you a treasure. That seems insane to me. (laughs) That he would look at you or he would look at Seth Gilpin and say, you know what? I'm going to bleed and die for him. I love him enough. Because he didn't go to the cross because he had to. (laughs) He didn't go to the cross because his father forced him. I saw something the other day. It said Christianity is nothing more than cosmic child abuse. You might get that later whenever you go home. (laughs) It's not cosmic child abuse. But Psalms chapter 2 records us 
a conversation between the son and the father where he says, ask of me and I will give you the heathen for an inheritance. I'll give you the heathen for an inheritance. But not only would that inheritance be heathen people, sinful people, messed up people, he would have to bleed and give him his life in order to receive it. But then you fast forward a little bit more into the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, and it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. <laughs> he didn't look at you with a scowl on his face, and he didn't look at you and sigh and shrug his shoulders and droop his head and say, okay, if I have to, no. But he said, they are a treasure. It will be a joy for me to go to that cross and bleed and die for them. It'll be a joy for me to have them in my presence one day in eternity. Hallelujah. And whenever we get on that side of eternity, don't you think that God is going to look at you and scowl at all the different times that you messed up? Hallelujah. But on that day, he's going to be happier to see you than you would ever be to be able to see him. Why? Because he counted you valuable when you weren't valuable. He counted you worthy when you didn't even count yourself worthy. He looked at the whole world, its sinful state, its messed up condition, saw a church in the middle of it and said, I don't care what I got to do. I will endure it even to the point of laying down my own life to have them in my presence. Hallelujah. And if God would consider us that type of treasure, count us that type of joy, consider us part of his inheritance, we ought to be able to treasure him in this life. Because then we get to the second parable, that the kingdom of heaven, that kingdom that he bought for, bled for, died for, that kingdom of heaven now is a merchant man that is seeking goodly pearls, that when he hath found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had. We see here that seeking kingdom of God. Those people who don't yet know they're a part of God's kingdom yet. Maybe they haven't heard the gospel yet. Maybe they haven't trusted in him yet. But then all of a sudden, what are they doing? They're looking for pearls of great price. Does that not describe the type of generation and the type of world that we live in right now? That they are looking for something. They're looking for something to fulfill them. If they can fulfill it in a lifestyle of, of immoral relationships, if they can fulfill it in a lifestyle of, of sports or entertainment or media or whatever it may be, anything to try and fill them. <laughs> Hallelujah. Like Brother Zach's testimony where he talks, I, I turn to everything to try and fill that void inside. <laughs> But he didn't know there was only one void. There was only one person that could fill that void. What is he? He's that merchant man. That's what you are. That's what I am, that merchant man looking for a pearl of great price that when he finds one pearl, <laughs> it outshines every other pearl that he's come in contact with. Because once you find Jesus, friend, your search is over. There's nothing else for you to look for. There's nothing else to look to. Because when this merchant man, when this kingdom of God finds this pearl he goes and now he sells everything that he has why because this one thing now encapsulates everything I am my entire existence is what to give up everything I am so that I can have this so that I can have him because he gave up everything so that he could have me hallelujah somebody say amen here tonight hallelujah because now when this merchant man walks away from that sales table the only thing he has left is that pearl. <laughs> Hallelujah. He's already given up everything he is. 
That's a picture of our Christian life. That when we come to this negotiation table with the Lord Almighty, salvation's a free gift. But you know what? It costs you everything. I was, there, was a, there was a football player that he had, got a, he had gotten a scholarship. And people were talking about, you know, you get a free ride to college. You get, a, you get, you get all this stuff. You get houses and meet you get housing and meals and education and and you get to play football and you get to go see all these great places and it didn't cost you nothing because you're so great he said it didn't cost me nothing he said but it cost me everything (laughs) because now my whole lifestyle has got to be I have to perform great at football yes it's free but it still costs something (laughs) I had to give up everything else in my life why because I'm going to go play football (laughs) Because I'm going to get this scholarship. Yes, it's free. I didn't owe a cent. I didn't pay nobody for it. It all got given to me. But what did I do? I had to give myself to the program. <laughs> and then I got it all for free. <laughs> and maybe that's just me because I like sports. But I see Jesus in the middle of that, that merchant man and the pearl of great price. That when you come to that negotiation table, it don't cost you nothing. But you've dedicated your life to it. <laughs> Like I say, I walk away, he's left his house, he's left his, you know, and back in those days, he's left his farm, his animals, his goats, his chickens, he ain't got no more of it, but what's he got? He's got that pearl. (laughs) And what is that? It's a treasure. (laughs) This is what I'm going to treasure the rest of my life. This is what I've laid everything else down for. Because once you come in contact with Jesus, it starts affecting your morals, affecting your conversations, affecting your actions, affecting your beliefs, affecting how you spend your money, affecting how you spend your time, affecting who you hang out with and who you don't hang out with and what you watch and what you don't watch. Why? Because now the only thing I have left is Jesus. What a great place to be in. Hallelujah. And it's only then when we get to that point that we can truly treasure Christ for who he is. Hallelujah. Can somebody come to the piano tonight? I'm done. Hallelujah. Amen. That was just the thought that I had on my mind coming here. Like I said, it all started when I was in that car coming back from the University of Cumberland, and I got, I got on that interstate exit right there by Starbucks. He spoke to my heart. He said, you've missed it. <laughs> you've missed it. <laughs> the entire purpose of your life is to be able to enjoy Jesus, <laughs> to be able to enjoy who he is. Matter of fact, the, only, the gift of life that we have, the fact that we have breath in our bodies, the fact that there's still people out there who aren't following Christ and they have breath in their bodies, why do they have that? Why? Because God's given them an opportunity to do the same. That's all our life is. People ask about why, we, why, why, why is life worth living? What's the purpose of life? Why would you bring anybody into this world? Why would you have children? I was having a conversation one time. It was an older man of God who's had a lot of children. And he said, you know, I've got that criticism a lot of times before. He said, why would you want to bring in so many kids into this world that's so corrupt? He said, because I wanted to give them an opportunity to know Jesus. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that same opportunity is ours tonight. If we can get in the mentality that, Lord... I don't care if I've not thought about you the entire day. Maybe I've been busy. Maybe you've been busy this whole day and you've not thought about him. But he slammed the brakes on you tonight, giving you an opportunity to come into his presence just to relish the fact that you're able to know him.
Can we all stand together tonight? Hallelujah. 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 I'm just going to make a general altar call to come and experience Christ. Come and enjoy Christ. Because he's inviting you. That scripture in Revelation that says, let the one who hears say come. Let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price come. What's the condition there? It's the one who has the desire. So if you bring your desire to the feet of Jesus, he promised that those who hunger and thirst without righteousness shall be filled. And he'll meet you right there. Can we all come and find us a place to pray tonight?